I love it when, um, when Jewel puts a bunch of men up here. I mean, I love to hear women sing too, but um, it gives me hope um, because, uh, because Shannon and I were talking about making a joyful noise uh, unto the Lord. And most of the time, in my case, it's just plain joyful noise, but um, there's something really neat when men sing, isn't there? I mean, anybody else agree with that? Uh, this will come as no surprise to you that I am not uh, Dr. Chris Williamson. I'm sorry. Uh, for those of you who are first-time visitors, it gets way better next week. Uh, I promise you that. Um, in fact, I'm not even all that interesting a guy to listen to. I mean, my pedigree is not that great. I'm not a former rap star. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a former professional football player. Uh, I don't have any... Um, medical degrees or advanced theological degrees. I don't speak with a cool accent. Um, and in fact, I was holding my granddaughter and put her to sleep. So anything, anything north of that, and this will go pretty well. So, um, I, I, and honestly, the first, first time I was ever asked to do a sermon was hmm, maybe over 25 years ago. We were in the Detroit City Rescue Mission. We used to live in Detroit. And uh, we would go down there once a month, once every two months, and prepare the food for 400 men and, you know, clean the bathrooms and sort the clothing. And then in the evening, those who uh, had a place to sleep there that night uh, would have to, you know, endure a message and a, and a time of praise in order to get their room. And so our team was in there, and uh, Mike, our youth pastor, was going to give the message. And it was my job to play the guitar and lead the singing, the joyful noise part. And so we clean all the bathrooms, we feed all the food, we do all the thing, and it gets time for the, the little church service part. And like five minutes before it's supposed to start, Mike comes to me and he goes, I don't know, man, my spirit's dead. I got nothing. Uh, how about you preach and I'll sing? And I, which was a half a good idea because Mike could sing really well. Um, but I was sort of in a pinch, you know, so what do you do? I'm like, oh gosh, five minutes. So I said, prodigal son, prodigal son's easy. I'll do the prodigal son, right? And so I did, and, and I got these guys all whipped into a frenzy, you know, about half of them weren't asleep, and, and, and I'm preaching on the prodigal son, and I'm, you know, talking about the pigs, and the kid has just realized his life has gone completely south, and it's time to leave the pigs behind and go back to his father and ask forgiveness. Then I thought it was going pretty good, you know? And uh, afterward, one of the guys comes up to me, he goes, brother, I heard the Lord speaking to me today. I'm going, oh, great. That's really good. He goes, no, I really did. When you said it's time to leave the pigs behind, I knew it was time for me to make some changes. I'm going, great, great. Um, so, yeah, can I lead you in a prayer? He goes, no, 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 no. I've already done that. I'm a, I'm a Christ follower. I'm like, okay. Uh, he goes, but I also work in the slaughterhouse with the pigs and I hate it. I hate my job. And I heard the spirit of the Lord say, it's time to leave the pigs behind. But it's like, no, no. He was, you know, the only guy within five miles who had a job. And uh, <clears throat> in my preaching debut, I talked him out of his job. So, uh, uh, so, so that didn't go pretty well. But um, so nothing really great qualifies me to be up here, um, except that um, uh, I've been married to this pretty brunette since 1982. And this is my awesome family sitting here. Got the three grown sons, daughter-in-law, two granddaughters. So that's kind of fun. I'm in the middle of a prolonged midlife crisis that uh, started about five years ago. 
that involves uh, uh, severe physical activity and I'm hurt all the time. But most importantly, I gave my life to Christ back in 1978 and I've been doing my best to follow him since that time. And along the way, um, I, I've learned an awful lot. Um, but I wanted to spend, with your permission, a little bit of time today just talking about one certain truth uh, that really, really is, I think, profound and has stuck with me. Before we do that, though, I got a little game I want to play. It's kind of a love it or hate it thing. You know how there are certain things in the world that you, just, you love it, but someone else hates it? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know the movie It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart? I love it. Kay hates it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing, right? So I got a couple of pictures I want to test you on. Um, here we go. First one, roller coasters, love it or hate it? Who loves them? Love them, right? Who hates them? Vomit, right? Okay, okay, survey said it's a yes. Everyone loves them. So a few people who don't like them are wrong. Okay, next one. Adam Sandler. Uh, some people think he's hilarious. Some think he's uh, not as funny as when I was 12. Um, so what do you think? Funny guy? Yes. Not funny guy? Survey said, oh, sorry, he's not a funny guy. Uh, he's got adolescent humor, apparently. Okay, next one. Justin Bieber. Wow. Well, let's do that again. Justin Bieber. Yeah, okay. Wait, survey said, yeah, apparently not. Okay. Uh, apparently, this is just a hated or hated a lot. Uh, there, there's no love involved with that one. Got another one? Ice cream. Ice cream, love it. Is there anybody who does not love ice cream? Oh, you're wrong. You're just wrong. <laughs> Survey said yes, absolutely. Someday I'll tell you why ice cream is uh, the nectar of God himself. But that's, that's for another day. And then finally, uh, whatever in the world that is, um, I've got no idea what that is. That, that Survey said no, absolutely not. That's, whatever that thing was is an absolute hate it. So, um, gosh, that was ugly. Um, it, for reference, Kay and I have never dressed alike. It's just a really bad idea, especially if you're going to get dressed in macrame or whatever that thing was. Okay, um, the point of the exercise is, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 today, the point of the exercise is Jesus is like that. In a lot of ways, Jesus is the most polarizing person in history. And you either love him 100% or not at all. If you go through the Gospels, you're going to find that he doesn't leave a lot of room in the middle. It's all or nothing. Turns out he's not real tolerant about keeping one foot on the dock and one on the boat. Doesn't work out well. Lord, I just ask you that um, you would let me get out of the way today. Just open your word to us. And let us hear what it is that you have for us. Be able to apply it well. And Lord, I just pray for Chris. I know he's preaching in Washington right now. I pray that you would continue to use this mighty man as your instrument to bring many, many people into a saving knowledge of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, but we're actually going to start just a paragraph or so before that. Um, I think I said 4. We're going to be in 5, but we're going to start a paragraph before that in Mark chapter four. And this is a period uh, which is about halfway through Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. And it's in the autumn, so you get an idea of the time frame. 
His disciples have been with him a year, a year and a half or so. And he says to them after a really, really long day, on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. I'm gonna stop there just for a second. At the other side of the sea, he's talking about the Sea of Galilee, the other side, the pagan side, the side where they raise pigs, which are unclean to Jews. If you're one of the disciples, you're asking, why? Why are we going to the other side? Our side's fine. I like our side. I know our side. People are like us. They sound like us. They speak like us. They dress like us. Why do we want to go to the other side? They serve other gods. They don't look like us. They don't think like us. They don't vote like us. Why do I want to spend time with them? At least that's what I would have been thinking. Kay and I tend to watch a lot of movies. Whenever a movie comes out or a documentary comes out on the civil rights, um, we're always fascinated by that. <clears throat> I mean, prejudice and bigotry have never made sense to me. I've never really understood it. So we, we watch these films, right? And the thing that I always see is back in those 1960s during the civil rights era, these really courageous African-Americans that would walk in and sit at the all-white counter. And they knew they were creating a disturbance. They knew that they would probably be arrested and mistreated. But I think I would have been one who said, why? Why are we going to their side? Even though, of course, it was the right thing to do, it, it would be intimidating. You can go up and down Nolensville Road here in town and see over 90 nations of people represented. A lot of them don't dress like I do. A lot of the women, their heads are covered and their faces are veiled. So that's, that's their area. Why would I go there? I had an episode in my life um, some years back uh, where I went to the other side. It was in uh, 1999, a little background. Uh, the country of Turkey is 99% Muslim. You really can't find any Christians and certainly not any churches. But they suffered a massive earthquake, monumental earthquake. Tens of thousands of people were killed. And we kept reading about it in the newspapers and everything, and Kay and I were praying, and we kept saying, Lord, I just really pray that you would send Christians in there just to be a witness, just to be able to show the love of Jesus. And it has, has often happened in our lives, um, you know, the Lord spoke through Kay. He, he's really clever about speaking through her to get my attention. Sometimes I kind of wish he would just tell me himself, but one time Kay just grabs me and goes, Lord's telling you, you have to go. And, and by now I've learned to trust her. And I'm like, eh, why didn't he tell me himself, you know? It's like, it's like, maybe did he tell you to go and you just heard him wrong? And because he told you to send me to other places where I got in trouble, but no, he, he, he really intended for me to go. So I went and uh, I went by myself. I didn't know anybody who was going, but there was a, a team on the ground, uh, you know, near uh, Earthquake Central. And I connected myself to them. And our jobs were like to build tents and make soup and serve soup and uh, just provide relief, right? Um, we played soccer games with kids, stockpiled rice, did all kinds of stuff. And it was going pretty well um, because I've got this olive skin complexion. If I stay out in the sun long enough, 
I can approximate a Turkish person, right? And if I don't shave for a week or so, I can start looking like a Turkish person. I was fitting in pretty well and picking up a few words here and there. And, and um, uh, one fellow said, hey, you're getting along very well with these people. They seem to like you. Go figure, you know. Uh, would you be interested in sharing the gospel? He said, it's, it's kind of a risky thing. You know, there's some chance that you could get in trouble, but uh, would you do it? And I wish I could give you this really heroic story, but I was kind of scared. At the time, they were 12 and 8 and 4 years old, and I was already missing enough baseball games as it was. And one of the warnings was, if you share the gospel with a child and get caught, you get five years of prison time. So that got my attention. Didn't, didn't sound all that interested in doing that. And I kept thinking, what if I get persecuted? You know, what if something bad happens? I mean, is Jesus really Lord over that situation too? If I go and do something really, really risky. So I phoned home and I said, hey, they asked me to do this thing in case it's okay. So she called all the prayer warriors and they all prayed about it. And she said, I think you're good to go. Again, um, as, uh, as is her custom. Um, and, and so we did. So I went out with another American guy named Jeff and they gave us a box of a hundred of these injils. And injil is kind of an Arabic Turkish word that means roughly good news. So this is a New Testament. This is a Turkish New Testament. And we had a box of a hundred of them and we thought we would try. If we go back to Mark chapter four for a moment, you'll find that they do go to the other side. They left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat and other boats went with him. And a fierce windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who's this? Even the wind and sea obey him. The Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. Mount Hebron to the northeast is about 7,000 feet above sea level. So in the autumn, when you have a storm around here, we call it a hurricane. And around there, that cold air from the mountain coming down and meeting the warm air coming up from the sea probably produced an amazingly furious squall. And they were in a fishing boat, right? Those little low walls and the boat was being swamped. Where was Jesus all this time? He was in the stern. I had to look it up just to make sure that's the back. Right. I'm not a fisherman. I don't like fish. I don't like hooks. But he was in the back. He's in the stern, on the cushion, asleep. He said basically to the wind, be still and stay still. So this is just on the way. We're not even to Mark chapter 5 yet, and all of a sudden Jesus says, I'm Lord over everything, every situation. You're freaked out by a little bit of wind, I'll take care of that, and then go back to sleep. So they get to the other side, and as Mark reports it, then they came to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gerasenes. 
And as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but he snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him, and always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What's your name? He asked him. My name is Legion, he said, because we are many. And he kept begging him not to send them out of the region. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside, and the people went to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The eyewitnesses described to them what happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. But Jesus would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were amazed. And this is kind of the turning point in the whole thing. If you see what's going on, immediately they land. They just went through this miracle, right? They came through a hurricane with a, in a rowboat and, and, and landed. And they said, wow, that's incredible. And immediately they meet this guy who lives in the tombs. Remember, dead people, unclean. Jews can't touch dead people. They can't touch dead bones. And that's where the guy lives. Pretty lousy address. You know, like his Facebook status, about me, I live in the tombs. You know, that's terrible. He's, got a, he's just got an awful situation, and he's possessed by hundreds, maybe thousands of demons. So he has an unclean spirit. He lives in an unclean place, and he's completely uncontrollable. They try chains and shackles, but he just busts them. And so he's alone. And the Lord sends him into the pigs. And the guy's now dressed in his right mind. He says, you thought the wind and sea were charming? How about this? I'm Lord over the uncontrollable. I'm Lord over chaos, right? Everything, clean and unclean. And to me, the key to this whole story is, and here's where I have to make a really big confession. When Chris asked me to bring a message this morning, he said, hey, you can preach on whatever you want, which is a terrible thing to do. I mean, it's an extremely risky thing for him to leave, right? Because all kinds of things can happen up here. Uh, but then to hand it off to uh, a, a completely uncredentialed guy like me and say, Let's talk about whatever you want. Man, you might get Justin Bieber up here. Anything could happen, right? <clears throat> but it was almost as if, as I was just kind of praying and reading, 
I mean, the Lord spoke this message to me. This, this was, this is not me bringing you anything new. This is what the Lord told me. Two distinctly different reactions. The man is clean, dressed in his right mind, and he begs Jesus that I will leave everything to follow you. The word beg is used over and over again. He's begging Jesus, let me be with you. And the other reaction, when the townspeople find out, they beg him to leave. Mark doesn't report anybody in between. He says, you've got two choices when it comes to Jesus. You just say, everything is yours. You can have my home, my marriage, my children. You can have my job. You can have my future. You can have my past. Everything is yours. Or you can say, I kind of like my home and my car and my present and my future. I'd like a little of you on Sunday, but not so much on Saturday night. And that, in effect, is begging him to leave you alone. And it turns out Jesus is incredibly intolerant. You know, the, the, the modern concept of tolerance isn't really a biblical thought. He says, basically he says, I'm Lord. I'm Lord over chaos. I'm Lord over uncontrollable. And I'm it. You serve me. You obey me. I'm not going to share my glory with anything else. You think all that other stuff's important? Go chase that. Otherwise, follow me completely. I mean, can you imagine the son of God himself comes to your town? walks into your town, cures your lunatic. The guy that you keep trying to chain up who keeps busting loose, right? This is like nightmare on Elm Street and he fixes it and you say, please leave. It's, it's kind of unimaginable in one sense. But I think it's maybe because Jesus asked too much. He asked him for too much. He asked for everything. They were content to get rid of their lunatic, but they really didn't want to make him Lord. And you hear it all the time. Yeah, Lord, promise me eternal life, but don't ask for much out of this life. You know, I kind of want to hang on to my stuff, right? Give me redemption, but don't ask for repentance. Give me communion, but don't ask for a confession. I want grace, but I want grace without discipline. I want grace without sacrifice. I want grace without the cross. I, don't, I want grace without Jesus. And the Lord says, there's no such thing. You're asking the impossible. I never knew you. He says, depart from me. It's, um, as I said, this was kind of the Lord preaching to me, saying there's no middle ground. You're either 100% hand to the plow following me, but do not try turning back. It doesn't work out. In, in Mark chapter 8, um, Jesus defines really clearly what it means to be a follower, really clearly when he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone who wants to save his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will save it. Take up your cross. There was no, I mean, we, we can wear these things, right? Now they're kind of cool. Everyone wears them. I'll bet Justin Bieber wears one. 
But in the day, a cross was not the symbol to be carrying around. The cross meant the most painful and shameful thing possible. And Jesus says, that's what it takes. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, the 20th century theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's a, it's a dangerous calling. Some begged to go with him, and some begged him to go away. Think about some of the gospel stories, you know. Uh, I could get two rich guys in the gospel. The rich young ruler, who Jesus said, you're really close. You're a good religious guy, but now sell everything and give it to the poor. And he walked away sad because he had too much stuff. And then there was Zacchaeus, you know, this short little troll guy, and he was too small to see Jesus, so he hopped up the tree. And when Jesus came into town, he got super excited, and Jesus says, I'm going to go eat with you. And, and Zacchaeus says, here right now is half my fortune. If I've defrauded anyone, they have four times whatever I ripped them off. Jesus said, salvation's come to this house this day. Two guys, similar situation. One left, one followed. But there was no in-between, no saying, you know what, I can give you a tithe uh, Monday. Monday I can give you a tithe, not today. There was none of that. It was all or nothing with Jesus. Matthew was a tax collector. He left his table with all the money on it and just left. The fishermen, they left their nets and their boats. I mean, they didn't even lock them up. They just left them and followed Jesus. I don't even know how many fish were in the net. They didn't count. They didn't care. They just left, left everything to be with him. Some of them said, hey, I got to take care of things back home first, and then I'll follow you. And he said, never mind. Let me go bury my father. He said, no, never mind. Follow me. I kept asking myself, which one are you? I mean, I'd love to sit up here and tell you. I mean, I could tell you our wedding vows. They weren't that great. Honestly, we made them up. Kay did much better on hers than I did on mine because uh, I didn't even write mine down. Um, but I just kind of made them up on the spot. And in August 7th, 1982, I, I, I promised her, I said, look, this is the time when I'm supposed to do the sickness and health and richer or poorer thing. But I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what I can promise except that I'll do my best to make Christ the center of our marriage. And it turned out to be a pretty good vow because even when I failed at that, the Lord has kept his end of the bargain. And that's, that's in part why, uh, and I hope you get a chance to meet him, that's why in part I have three men that love the Lord and they love their women and their great husbands and fathers and and the Lord's kept his end of the bargain. We've tried. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard to follow God exclusively, entirely. But, but when you do, you begin to love the way he loved. You begin to live the way he lived and pray the way he prayed and glorify God the way he glorified the Father. I remember when Luke over here on the end was 16. He got his driver's license. And uh, he said, Dad, can I go to McDonald's? responsible kid, never got to be, you know, perfect child, maintenance free. I said, sure, take the car, go to McDonald's. Came back about three hours later. I 
we live in a pretty residential area. You know, it seemed like a long way, a uh, long time with the car. I said, where'd you go? He goes, I went up on Broadway, up in Nashville. And I was like, you had to pass 25 McDonald's to get to that one. But he went through the drive-thru, he used up his own money, emptied out their dollar menu, and then took a bunch of sandwiches into the park to eat with the vagrants and just fed them sandwiches, and share the gospel, share their lives together, and did that for weeks on end. Oh, man. Man, when I grow up, I want to be like him. Right? Did he love the way Jesus loved? Kay went to Haiti about six or seven years ago after their earthquake. Uh, this time the Lord spoke to her and said it was her turn to go, which I was really happy about in, in a lot of ways um, because she has some medical training and she thought maybe she could be of some value to them. And she happened to find herself in this village with a bunch of kids around and asked an innocent question. So where do these kids go to school? School? No, no, there's no school here. The kids don't go to school here. She said, well, what would it take? And uh, they kind of made up a plan. And like a month later, we were in the school business. We have a Christian school in Haiti that's just finishing up its fifth year. Like, how on earth? And, and, and I, can remember, I can remember a month into it. Um, I don't panic. I don't really have a panic attack. Um, I, I'm, uh, I have an unbelievably narrow emotional band. This is a spiritual gift, I think, um, because I don't get nervous and I don't panic. But I was laying in bed and I have whatever my version of panic was. So I was laying there thinking, Lord, what have we gotten into? Because I don't speak the language, don't hold the currency, don't understand the practices, don't know the curriculum. I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to educate. I, 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 I. And it was just as if God said, oh, you thought it was about you again. It's not. It never has been. It's about me. I love Haitian children, and I love this village, and it's me who will be glorified in this. You know, you look at the way Jesus prayed. Do you pray the way he prayed? He's in the garden in John chapter 17, about to go to his death, and he's praying, God, glorify yourself in my life. Glorify yourself. Really? I'd be praying for a way out. And then when it got really tough and he realized he was going to carry the weight of the whole sin, the world's sin, he said, but not mine, but your will be done. That prayer doesn't come frequently enough in my life. Hours later, he's hanging on the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. Wow. Do you pray the way Jesus prayed? Do you glorify God the way he did? Our job in Turkey was we were supposed to take these things around. Remember, we got a box of 100 of them. We thought that was kind of conspicuous. And, you know, never mind that we were like really, really white and American with backpacks on, you know, so it seemed kind of dumb. We thinned it down, and, and the guy I was with named Jeff, you know, and he's like this blonde, blue-eyed guy. He's not fitting in at all, uh, except that he's like super courageous. So he took six and I took six and we're stuffing them all in our pockets. And our job was kind of just to walk and find people and to say, Arkadash, Kita Varma, hey friend, have you seen this book? Do you want this book? This is a gift for you. 
thought, okay, well, we could memorize that. That wasn't that hard. And so we came on this little group of people, and, you know, I grabbed mine and said, hey, Arkadash, kita varma? And we gave one away. We're like, woohoo! We gave one away. And about four minutes later, a police car showed up. Uh, the person who took it, uh, I think, took it to the police. And um, we were immediately arrested and brought to their um, jail. Uh, well, this is precisely what I was praying that would not happen. Uh, and and uh, kind of thinking, what, what strategically did I do wrong, right? God, how are you going to be glorified in this thing? And so they took our wallets and they took our belts and they took our passports and they took our injils. So we had none of those things. And then the worst thing for me was they separated us. So Jeff went one way and I went into a cell. I don't know, maybe he ratted me out or something. He said it was all my idea and he got to go free. I didn't know what happened. But um, uh, I was interrogated, I don't know, four or five times throughout the day. Kept getting brought into the captain's office who didn't speak English. So I had to get this guy to interpret. And the questions were hard. They were really hard questions. Some of them were, um, I mean, they were simple, but if I answered wrong, I'm thinking 12, eight and four years old, I'll see him again on their wedding days. You know, I was really sort of panicked about it. Like I say, I'd like to say I was super courageous about this and like the apostle Paul and singing hymns in jail, but I really wasn't. I was uh, really puzzled by the whole matter. And they were asking, why did you even come to Turkey? I said, well, look in my backpack. I said, there's, there's toys in there for kids. There's balloons. I came to, to encourage people. You know, the earthquake was really bad, and, and I felt terrible about it, and I wanted to help. I said, well, why are you really here? Yeah. Balloons, backpacks, see kids' toys. Uh, wanted to help a whole lot. And uh, so, well, why do you have these? And our script was supposed to be, well, we have those because I'm trying to learn the language. It's kind of weak, but that was the script, right? So I said, well, I'm trying to learn the language. And he goes, why do you need 11 of them? No snappy response for that one. I had nothing. Like, uh, back to my cell. Come back out an hour later, get interrogated again, back to the cell, sign this, sign that. I'm not signing anything. I can't read it. You know, I'm like, wow, I don't know what I'm being accused of kind of freaking out, figuring out Jeff is probably halfway back to Istanbul by now, and I'm hung out to dry, right? I finally get called in again, and the uh, interrogator was getting kind of frustrated with me, and the translator interpreted his question of, you won't tell us the truth. Are you ashamed of this book? At the time, I only knew two verses with ashamed in it, and it both turned out bad. Uh, so I just said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And then just kind of waited for the hammer to come down. Back to my cell. Um, I'm just like, God, how are you glorified here? This is working out really bad. I hate it in here. I don't even have a toilet. They had a hole in the floor. I was like, Man, it smells bad. I don't like this place. It's not working out so good for you either. So if it's all the same to you, it'd make a lot more sense if we could get out of here together. Got put in a different cell, this time with Jeff. I'm like, woohoo, he's in here too. You know, I was pretty happy about that. 
But this was sort of, he had a worse one than I did. I had a hole in the floor. He was underground. He was in like this garden cell where you're like your waist deep underground. And there's little bars and the bars, you can watch people's ankles go by. You know, you get the picture. And they put, apparently they post your particular crime on the outside of your cell so people can walk by and curse you. And they spit on the ground. Like, so that kept going on. And the whole time, Jeff's yelling out the cell window, Arkadash, Kita Varma, what are you doing? That's exactly what got us thrown in jail. He's trying to give them Bibles, right? He goes, I know, right, what are they going to do, throw us in jail? All right. <laughs> A lot more courageous than I was. Finally, we got called in at the end of the day, and, and the interrogator just quit. He goes, here, sign this. And there was our stuff. There's my wallet, there's my belt, and there's my backpack, and there's our stack of 12 books. So I just figured it must have been Jeff. I, I sure wasn't very heroic about it, but I figured it, it must have been him just trying to preach the gospel out the window. Following Jesus, it's an all-or-nothing deal, man. It, it, there, there's no in-between. You don't bargain. You either beg to follow him, or you just kind of beg him to leave you alone. Little Jesus on Sunday is not what he asks for. There wasn't any in-between for the Pharisees. They were super smart guys. I would have been a Pharisee. I would have tried. I mean, they loved the word of God. There wasn't any in-between for Judas. He followed Jesus for three years. But on fourth down, he punted and really worked out badly for him. Can you imagine? Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better if he had never been born. Wow. It wasn't going to work out well for the lukewarm church. You know, in Revelation 3, where there's those letters to the church, and the church to Laodicea is this lukewarm church, and it says that that church is lukewarm. I don't drink coffee, so think of milk in my case. Hot chocolate's really good on a cold day. Cold milk is really great with Oreos. We don't even need a picture. You all know cold milk and Oreos works really well. Lukewarm milk, milk that sat out on the counter all night long. Then you find it in the morning, it's got some chunks in there and stuff. Nobody wants to drink that. Throw that away. Jesus says of that church, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Before which he says, you think you're rich. So there's not room for a Judas or a lukewarm church or a Pharisee. It's all or nothing. So it's, it's all, if it's all, and you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to be prepared for several things. It's hard. It's hard. You've got to take up your cross. It's hard to deny yourself. It's hard to take in strangers. It's hard to adopt children. It's hard to serve in the church. It's hard to give when there's something you really want to buy. It's really hard to start a Christian school in a pagan nation. It's really, really hard to forgive. It's hard to pray for those who persecute you. But if you do the hard things, if you follow Jesus, you say, this is the side I want to be on. I will follow you completely. 
you can be assured that that will show up in the way you live. It'll show up in the way you love. It'll show up in the way that you pray. It'll show up in the way that God's glorified. Remember the guy who was healed and he begged to follow Jesus and he said, no, 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 you stay back in the Decapolis and you go witness to your own friends. Do you ever wonder what happened? I think it's great that Mark continues the story in chapter eight. Because what happens is Jesus goes back to the Decapolis and there are 4,000 people waiting for him and he feeds them all. I don't find any evidence in the Bible that there was 4,000 followers of Christ before he went over. They, they, they came to Christ probably at least in part because of this man's testimony. So the guy said, I really want to follow you. And he said, no, no, I got a job for you. And he followed Jesus from a distance and it worked out incredibly well. As for us, still back at the police station, um, we were in for one more surprise. I'm all set to sign this thing. I'm like, come on, Jeff, sign it. I'm signing, you're signing, we're getting out of here. And the captain, the interrogator, sent the translator away, closes his door and starts speaking to us in English. I'm like, I was so mad. I'm like, he understood all along. I'm like, really? You had to make this twice as hard? But he goes, here's your stuff. And here's your manifest. And it says 11 angels. So will you still sign it if I only give you back 10? Now was my turn. Jeff was super crazy. Now was my turn. I'm going, oh yeah, yeah, season each and beer a day. Hey, this is a gift for you. I'm super excited about it. He goes, wait. Opens the door, calls in the guy that arrested me which I think we have a picture of. Um, and that guy came in, much better looking guy than I am. That guy came in and the captain asked, will you still sign if I only give you back nine? I'm like, woo, this is really working out better than we thought it would, right? One by one, there's about 30 police officers in this station. 11 of them sat around all day long wondering what it is in this book that's worth spending time in jail over. And they all wanted to have one. I couldn't see that at the beginning. I couldn't see that in the middle of the storm. I sure couldn't see that out of my little jail cell. But, but what God asked me and Jeff to do is just obey, just, just pray, just just do your part and just watch me shine. Because like, you're pretty much stinking it up right now, but you just watch what I'm gonna do here. And he was glorified. I don't know what became of those guys because we still didn't sign. Jeff had to throw one more and he goes, I'll sign under one condition. Like, Come on. Honestly, I'm signing, you're signing, give me a pen. Let's get out of here, right? He goes, I'll sign on one condition, because he lived in Turkey, he was a student. He said, we will read this together and I'll come down to this station every Wednesday at noon and we'll start in the Gospel of John and read it together because it's too powerful for you by yourself. 
guy goes, okay. So he signed, we signed, the police captain signed, the guy who arrested me signed, everybody's signing everything. I don't know whatever became of them. I really don't. I do sense that anybody driving or getting in trouble in that little police station from now on is going to have a much better go of things. Because I'm convinced that by the power of the Holy Spirit, many of those men have come to Christ. It's all or nothing. It really is. There's not a compromised position. There's not any kind of bargaining that goes on with God. I love the way the Gospel of Mark puts that story. You either beg to follow Jesus. See, you get everything I've got. Everything I'll ever be is yours. Or you say, everything I got and everything I'll ever be is kind of important to me. I'm going to beg you to leave me alone. That's all there is. You got two choices. C.S. Lewis um, said it uh, quite well when he said, in the end, there's really only two choices. Either we're going to see God and say to him, your will be done. Or he's going to look and say, your will be done. Thanks. Katie, you want to come up and close us? This is the uh, this is the beautiful brunette that God speaks through. So, so if she comes to you and says that God has a word for you, either pay attention or duck. Let's just pray, dear Lord. We thank you for this time to um, come together to uh, step out of the busy busy day to day times that we have. And just to reflect on you, to come together as worshipers. I thank you, Lord, that we live in a country where we can freely gather, um, unlike so many places where they have to do it underground and fearful, that we are free, Lord, to, to read your word and to gather together and encourage one another. I just ask that each day this week, as we wake up in the morning, Lord, that we would beg you, not ask you, but beg you to be with us throughout the day that we would seek your will and seek to, to honor you and to serve you. And we do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>